As we have studied the life of Jacob, we have seen a tremendous shift in his own life from Jacob, the ankle-grabbing deceiver, to Israel, one who uh, strives or wrestles with God, or one who God wrestles with. So, um, as we dive in, let's uh, see this last chapter of Jacob here. Chapter 35. Verse 1, God said to Jacob, Arise and go to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourself and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So, they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree. That was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon their cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were there with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he had fled from his brother, and Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under the oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And Jacob said to him, I'm sorry, and God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply a nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I get, that I gave to Abraham and to Isaac, I will give to you, and I will ha- I will give this land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel when they were still some distance from Ephrath. Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni. But his father called him Benjamin. 
So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servants, Dan, Naphtali, and the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham, Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, my name is John Novus Elkins. When I was little, uh, probably about my son's age, I refused to answer to anything except that. The full name. John Novus Elkins. My name has meaning to it. I was named after... Um, a missionary in Africa named John McFadden, who was a very godly man that worked with my dad, and I was named after my grandfather, Novus Noble Elkins. They had weird names, brothers, Novus, Festal, Festus, Cecil, Melvin, Dan. I don't know how Dan snuck in there. Their sister's name was Abbas. Weird people, weird names itinerant farmers from Germany, uh, bizarre people, but my grandfather was a great man, very, uh, his name suggested, noble man. Now, I looked up the meanings of my name at one point, and John means grace. I know that a lot of you uh, would, would know that already. John means grace, and novice means sick. So, there's that. Um, Elkins means uh, kin to the Hebrew God. Uh, El Kin, right? It's a Germanic repossession of the name. Uh, kin to Yahweh, or descended from Yahweh, which I think is awesome uh, and something I like to brag about. That's what my name means. Um, names have meaning, they have power, especially in the Bible. When you see these names, they have value and they have identity in them. So great is the meaning of names that God seems to make a big deal about it. In the, in the end of the book, he says, those that pursue, the end of this book, by the way, Revelation, the last book, he says, those that are faithful get a new name that only the hearer and God knows. But it's a name that describes who you are, and it's a name that makes sense. And it's yours. And God knows it, and God gives it to you. And when you hear it, you go, yes, that's me. I hear my name and I think, yeah, yeah, that's me. Yep, 
grace sick descendant of Yahweh. Yeah, I am gracefully sickened by God constantly. Gracefully made ill. I am sickened of grace. I get grace constantly from God. I am ill, as many of you know, literally have an affliction. It's a great uh, blessing and annoyance. So, I, uh, I live up to this name, great name and delight that it is to have. Many of you live up to your names and don't even know it. God seems to work things out this way. And what we have seen in this book is a guy that goes from being liar and deceiver to Israel. God wrestler. One who strives with God. Jacob is still Jacob at the end of this chapter. Did you notice? He's referred to three ways. Father, Israel, but most often, Jacob. There's a great deal of comfort in recognizing the names that Jacob has given. Because we can recognize that though we are not yet living by the name God has given us perfectly, he is faithful to continue to walk with Jacob. He's faithful to stick with Jacob. So, we read here, at the very, let's dive in, we read here, verse, verse 1, God said to Jacob, arise and go to Bethel and dwell, dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. God here is very, very weird language to Jacob. He says, he reminds him, keep your vow. Remember in chapter 28, verse 20 and following, he makes a vow to God and says, if you'll stay with me, if you'll stick with me, I'll go to Laban and then I'll come back and I'll make an altar here and I'll make a home here and this will be where I am. And I'll I'll come back and you'll get a tenth of everything and this will be it. I'll make sacrifice. This will be house of God, Bethel. And where did he go? Last chapter, he stopped in Shechem. And everything went bad, right? Everything goes downhill when he stops in Shekel. When we forget that our chief joy is found in knowing God, we will inevitably set up our tent in Shechem. We will inevitably stop halfway. We will not chase God to the fullness that he's called us to do, and we will stop early. Thank goodness that our God does not stop. That our God continues to press us. That He continues to call us and woo us. Remember, Jacob had stopped in Shechem. He bought a field. He made a home. Just short of his vow to go to Bethel. God tells him, keep your vow. And Jacob, keep your vow. And then look at how God describes himself. To the God who appeared to you when you ran away from your brother. Keep your vow to the God who appeared to you when you ran away from your brother. God doesn't use his name. He doesn't address Jacob by saying, keep your vow to me, go to Bethel, keep do what you said you would do for me. Instead, he says, 
to the God who appeared to you when you met your brother. Now, sometimes God has to remind us that we haven't always known him. That's what's going on here. He's looking at Jacob going, hey, get up and go to Bethel, like you said you were going to, and keep your vow to that God who's, who's known you even when you didn't know him. Keep your vow to the God who knew you even when you didn't know him. So take delight in this. All your past failures and faltering. And so, do you notice God doesn't bring anything up? The last chapter was horrendous. God doesn't bring anything up. He doesn't go, hey, you're kind of a rotten father, Jacob. He doesn't do that. He says, hey, arise and go to Bethel to where the God who appeared to you, the God who, that God appeared to you there. Remember, Jacob, I have known you since long before you have known me. I have known and been with you since long before you have known me. Take comfort in the fact that God has been with you even long before you recognized Him. Long before you ever saw Him. God has been with you. Then we can also take comfort in this, that God still wants Jacob, which is baffling to me. You'd think that He'd do what He did to Moses and be like, I'm starting over. I'm going to kill everybody. Or Noah, Jacob, I'm taking Ben and I'm going to destroy the rest of your family. Ben's going to be mine. I'm starting over with your youngest kid. You'd think that he'd do that, but instead, he keeps these rotten people. Because it's not just Jacob at this point. Simeon and Levi have proven themselves rotten. Reuben's about to prove himself rotten. Judah, Judah, the one who the Messiah comes through, is about to prove himself rotten in another two chapters. Every kid. The only one that doesn't prove himself rotten is pretty arrogant and gets sold into slavery. This uh, this God, how great is he that he still wants Jacob and Israel? That he still wants Israel? How great is he that he still wants me and that he still wants you? How great is this? That he knows exactly what's going on in your life this week and he still wants you, still wants me. How great is this? So, Jacob, verse 2, Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may... Uh, make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all their foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Jacob then calls his people together. Remember, this is a large group. This is a small city. This is not just Jacob, 12 kids, and some people. Like This is servants and sheep and livestock. This is a massive group of people that would make up a small town. 
And he says, bring me all your foreign gods, bring me all your idols, all your symbols of slavery, bring them to me. And he buries them under the terebinth tree near Shechem, symbolizing that these things are now dead. And he even goes as far as to change their clothes. Everyone change your clothes. You need to be in clean clothes for this. Because we're coming before God Almighty. He is changing things here. Change your clothes. So, this is where Paul, by the way, this is, I believe where Paul and the New Testament get the imagery of taking off the old and putting on the new. This is where he gets that imagery. God calls uh, calls to Jacob, tells him to come, and Jacob then consecrates everybody with him, and then he calls God this name. He says, uh, let us arise and go to Bethel, that I may make an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress. This is, this is a name for God. And we know it's a name for God for two reasons. One, in Hebrew, the word God there is not Elohim, which is what we see them use when they use God by itself. Elohim means greater than all other gods. It's literally a Hebrew plural, El and then Him, that's the, the plural of God. But in Hebrew, when you have a plural, it doesn't always mean multiple people or multiple things, but it means greater. So when Abraham is in the land and he calls God Elohim, he's saying, this is the one true great God. Now, he doesn't use the name Elohim here. He uses the name El, and then he has this, this phrase attached to it. And the phrase, note the phrase, it's in present tense. God who answers me in the day of my distress. It's not a memorial that he's making, but it's a title he's giving to God. This is God who answers me in the day of my distress. Same, same concept of Jehovah Jireh, all these names that we read earlier. Jehovah Jireh, uh, Jehovah Magananu. El Roy. All these names are names of God that tell us something about God's character. So here's something about God's character is that God answers in the day of distress. Are you distressed about anything? If your answer is no, you're lying because we're American and we live in this culture now and there's something at some level somewhere that is a stressor on you. This is the God who answers you in your distress. This is the God who answers. Oh, what a joy it is to know that God is not silent. Just like Abraham met the God who provides, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides, now Jacob is meeting the God who answers during his distress. The name El Haoni. Say that just because it's going to come up in another couple minutes. El Haoni. Say that? It's weird. El Haoni. Okay, keep that sound in the back of your head because there's a Hebrew thing that goes on in the next chapter which will jump out at you, I hope. Jacob then buries everything from their past. And let's look at verses 5 through 8. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them. So they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Remember last chapter, at the end of the chapter, Jacob was terrified that all the other cities were going to attack him. Here he says, a terror from God falls upon those cities. 
terror from God. Now, are you worried about somebody or something attacking you? Are you worried about something closing in on you? Listen, if you are headed to worship God, if you are following the Lord, He takes care of those things. He takes care of those things. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you were walking into a place and you were afraid of what people were going to say or do when you walked in. And then you watched as God silenced mouths and shut doors that you were afraid were going to open. I don't know if you've ever been there, but that's what's going on here. Jacob is terrified on his journey. He's got to walk past all these cities. He's worried somebody's going to kill him and take his stuff. And yet, a terror falls on everyone around. And they shut their doors and they back away. That is supernatural God stepping in. God steps in to protect His people. And note, He steps in to protect the sons of Jacob, not the sons of Israel. The name is important. He's protecting the sons of liars, the rotten ones. So listen, he's not protecting Jacob because Jacob is great. He's not protecting Israel because Israel does all the right things. He's protecting Israel because he is Israel's God. And if God is your God, you are on your way to worship Him, and you are following His lead, He will protect you, even when it seems absurd for you to follow His lead, which is often the way it feels. Absurd to follow His lead. And He will protect you. So, God then uh, takes him here, and in verse 6 it says, And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, uh, which is... In the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, God's house, or God of God's house. That's what that means, God of God's house. El Bethel. Note that it's not called Bethel this time, because Jacob is now identifying this is where God is, not just this is where God was, this is where God owns, but rather this is where God is present. We need to see in our own lives that we live in a state where God is present with us. He didn't just drop His presence and then walk away. He didn't just start the world moving and take His hands off. He didn't just start actively uh, working in your life and then go, all right, you're on your own. He didn't do that. He didn't save you and go, now it's up to you. He didn't do that. Instead, He's present, active, constant here. And Jacob finally starts to get it and sees, oh, God is still here. Now it's not just about a place, but it's about the God who inhabits that place. It's about the God who inhabits that place. Our experiences must lead us to seek Him and not just the place. Many times in American culture, we have these experiences that are mountaintop highs. I used to call them youth camps, right? That's what they, that's, it's what a youth camp is. It's a mountaintop high for a week. And let's just think rationally, right? You take a bunch of teenagers, you put them in a room, you, you deprive them of sleep, 
and you give them really great, great messages about God, really powerful music about the Lord, and you saturate them in an environment away from home where they're all awkward and clumped together, and they cannot help but have an experience. Right or wrong? That's what it is. You've exhausted somebody. You've put them in front of excellent, honestly, excellent teaching most of the time. Fantastic music that resonates with them. And then emotional appeal. Now, you can do this without the last one and still get the same result. Just saying. But the this, this youth camp high. I, I used to do it. I used to have it. I used to take students on it. You can take advantage of it. It's great to grab a student and, and send them through this. Now, the problem is, after that high, we tend to remember the camp and not the God behind the camp. So the job of the, for anybody listening on the podcast, the job of the youth pastor is then to translate that experience to focus the students on knowing Jesus more. And not just remembering the camp. If a student can remember the God that they met there, then he will still be present. But if all a student remembers is the awesome camp, you lost them. So, that having been said, that was totally for the benefit of the podcast, because I don't think anybody in this room is a youth pastor taking a bunch of kids to camp. But we're coming up on that season, so Merry Christmas. The Jacob then... Uh, comes to God and he remembers God is here at Bethel. We have to remember that he is present. Then you have this strange story in verse 8. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bakut. If you're like me, this should have given you pause. Because you're like, wait, Rebecca? Did you notice it's not Rachel? It's Rebecca. Who's Rebecca? Isaac's wife. Rebecca is Jacob's mom. Rebecca's nurse would have been Jacob's nurturer. Would have been his nurturer. This is important because of the next portion. But realize what's going on here is the nurturer who has helped to kind of nurture Jacob, his last vested connection to his mother, is now gone. God appeared immediately following. So then he names the area uh, Weeping Oak Tree. This impacts Jacob. He is sad. Verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again, and when he came to Padan Aram, he blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. El Shaddai. This is the same name Abraham was introduced to God by in chapter 17. This pattern here, verses 9 through 15, are almost identical to Abraham in chapter 17. Jacob is now back on track. What we have seen in this book is that Jacob is walking the same path as Abraham. And now he's back on track with the path. And God introduces himself as El Shaddai. I bring that up because the name El Shaddai, we translate it God Almighty, 
but it means God, the breasted one. Literally, God, the supreme nurturer. God who nurtures. This is the Hebrew term for a God who is sustaining all life and is nurturing and giving and holy. See, in our American minds, when we think of Almighty, we tend to think of all powerful, strong, fierce. But in the Hebrew language, El Shaddai means much, much more than just really strong. It means all-sufficient one. The one who provides for your every need and your every want and your every desire. Remember where Jacob's life started? In the womb, he's fighting with his brother over who's going to be first. Comes out and he spends his whole life fighting over getting what he wants. He steals from his brother, steals from his dad to get what he wants. He goes to Laban and he gets cheated and he argues and connives and weasels his way with Laban and gets what he wants by his own means. And finally, he gets to Shechem and thinks he's going to get what he wants by his own means and everything goes bad. And now finally, he's surrendered it all. He's buried it under a tree and he's gone on his way to Bethel to keep the vow. And God's, and, and his nurse dies and God says, I am your nurturer. I am your sustainer. I am your God. I am your protector, your defender. I am the one who provides for your every need. El Shaddai, God says, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. He is the one who provides. Now, just a brief look back at chapter 17 and chapter 35. There's some similarities here. First is the name of God introducing chapter 17, verse 1. Chapter 17, verse 1. God says El Shaddai appears to uh, Abraham. Here in chapter 35, verse 11, I am El Shaddai. Then he repeats the covenant. And in the covenant here, he, he promises land, people, nation, rule, and blessing. He promises them all parts of the covenant. Now the difference is found here in chapter 17, where Abraham, then given the sign of the covenant, Circumcision. Abraham is given this picture of circumcision. So, contrast circumcision with what happens with Jacob here in verse 14. And Jacob set up a pillar, same thing Abraham does, set up a pillar in a place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob anoints this pillar with wine, and oil, saying, God is my king, that's the oil, anointed king. God is my king, my hope, my salvation. And then the wine, pouring out this drink offering on it. If that doesn't send you to thinking about communion and Christ's blood being poured out on your behalf, you're not thinking well enough. This is an image that later Jesus would use 
in John chapter 7, when the priest walks around the altar at the end of the feast, and I know it doesn't state it in the text, it's a cultural Hebrew thing, he walks it around the altar, he's walking this jar of water, and then he's joined by a second priest with a jar of wine, and they walk around the altar seven times, and then they pour it out on the altar. And Jesus, unable to hold back anymore, goes, Come to me, anybody who thirsts! I have the water of life! I'm the life! Come to me, anybody who's thirsty, and I'll give you drink. The river of life. This is the image that's laid out before us in the Old Testament. Oh, isn't God good to put this before us thousands of years before Jesus even shows up. God is present. God's name has been active in your life long before you met His Son. Isn't that amazing to know? Oh, take heart. He's actively working in your neighbors as well. In your co-workers. In your family members who don't know Christ. He is actively working and present. And things are being changed constantly. Then Abraham in chapter 17 gets his name changed from Abram to Abraham. From father to father of many. Or great father. And Israel gets his name changed from Jacob to Israel, one who strives with God here. Verse 16, then they journeyed from Bethel, and when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor, and when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, do not fear, you, for you will have another son. And as she was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni. Remember the name of God. El-Chaoni. Ben-Oni. She calls her son Ben-Oni. But his father called him Benjamin. So when Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem, And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. So, Israel, on his way to Bethlehem, Ephrath, uh, his wife is pregnant and she goes into labor and she has a son. And she names the son, Son of Sorrow, Ben-Oni important that you hear the rhyme. El Chaoni, God who answers me in my distress. Ben Oni. This is on purpose. Jacob knows that this is the God who answers him in his distress. And what greater distress could there be than Ben Oni? My wife dies giving childbirth. What greater distress could there be? This is, this is the favored wife that he loves. This is the son who becomes his favorite. And eventually, he is 
wiped out. And she dies on the way to Bethlehem. To Bethlehem. We are believers, and we read the Bible through a lens of Jesus Christ. And Do you see it? Death on the way to where life is granted to all people through a son. Through a son. God answers our distress through a son who sits at the right hand of the father, which is what the father calls Benjamin. Son at my right hand. Genesis 35 is saying, you want to know the answer for distress? It's the Son of God who sits at the right hand of God. Further, Ben-Oni should draw everyone's mind back to Genesis, chapter 3, when God says, in deep savon, sorrow, you will bear children. And it says, the seed of the woman, I will put enmity between the seed of of the serpent and the seed of the woman, and the seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. Jesus prophesied in Genesis 3, verse 15, long before this ever happens, Rachel is on her deathbed and names her kid, son of sorrow. And Jacob looks at him and goes, no, this is the son of my right hand, because this is... He's the God who answers in my distress and answers my sin and my rebellion and my wickedness with a son who will save me at the right hand of the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, who comes down to take the sins of the world upon himself, dies and is resurrected and sits now at the right hand of the Father, awaiting the appointed hour when he will return to rescue us from what? from our distress and set everything right. Feel the gravity of these names. Feel the gravity of these names. They are all designed to point you to see Jesus Christ the righteous is the answer for our salvation. So Jacob goes on a little bit further and he uh, sets up at Eder and while Israel, this is just to assure you that this is not the guy. So throughout the Old Testament, we have this picture of someone needing to redeem. Someone needs to rescue. And first you think, um, oh, it's Seth. Because Cain and Abel, Cain kills Abel. It's not Cain. Remember in chapter 4 of Genesis, Eve has a child and goes, great, I've gotten a son with the help of the Lord. Leaves Adam out of it. I've gotten a son with the help of the Lord. This will be the one who will crush that of the snake seed of the woman, crushed out of the snake, woo, fixing, we're going back in the garden, and then Cain kills Abel, not the guy, then maybe it's Seth, not Seth, then it goes on, maybe it's Noah, Noah, name means rest, maybe Noah will give us rest, and Noah indeed leads them through building the ark, and, and over through the flood saves eight people and all of the animals of the earth, and then lands on a mountaintop, comes down, makes sacrifice to God, and ends up drunk and naked in a field, not the guy. Then you end up with maybe maybe it's Abraham. Maybe it's Abraham. And Abram just starts off bad uh, pretty early and, and lies about his wife's relationship to him to save his own hide. And so, you know, that's not the guy. Well, maybe it's his kid. Oh, oops, Ishmael. 
not the guy. Uh, maybe it's Isaac. Oh, Isaac is just as bad as Abram at points, and so he must not be the guy. Then you got Jacob, and Jacob does the exact same thing Isaac does, and the exact same thing Abraham does that were bad. And so you're like, well, it can't be the liar and deceiver. He's not the guy. And then you go further, and you go all the way to his sons, and each of his sons proves to be not the guy. And then you get to Moses, and you're like, Moses is the guy. Oh, he's not, because of stuff. And then you keep going, and you get, maybe we'll get a king, and maybe a king will rise up. Or maybe the judges, Joshua. Joshua will do it. And then Joshua, what does it say at the end of Joshua? He failed to drive everyone out of the land. Okay, not Joshua. Maybe it's the judges. And then every judge just gets progressively worse until Israel gives into civil war, and you're like, oh my goodness, they need a king. And then they have a king, and he's awful. Saul is horrible. And then you're like, maybe it's because we need a better king, and God gives them David. And David, you're like, yes, man, after God's own heart, this is the guy. He's going to crush the head of the snake. Oh, no, he slept with Bathsheba. Everything goes downhill. Israel divided kingdom. And now you've got this divided monarchy that is failing all across the board. They're sent into exile. And the end of the Hebrew Bible ends at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, where the walls have been rebuilt, and the priests have come back to offer sacrifices in the temple, and the only thing that is missing is the guy. Seed of the woman who will crush the head of the snake. The Hebrew Bible, by the way, ends with Ezra and Nehemiah. Ours ends with the last prophet, but the Hebrew ends it with Ezra and Nehemiah because they're waiting for the king, Messiah, to come. Matthew chapter 1. Jesus is born. Here's his genealogy. In the middle of his genealogy, the name David. Not only is the name David in the middle of his genealogy, it's also hinted at through the numbers of the genealogy three times. And we have, this is the appointed Messiah, I promise. David, Jesus, shows up the King of Glory. Now think about this. God has given you his names over and over in the Old Testament for thousands of years pointing to this one Messiah. And throughout the Old Testament, we have, this is not the guy. And you're tempted here at this point to go, maybe Israel is the guy, maybe he's the guy that's going to be redeemed. And then God writes this. While Israel lived in the land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard of it. Wicked. Wicked. Wicked behavior. Israel does nothing. Heard of it, lets it go. Nothing. What uh, Reuben was doing was trying to make Bilhah, by the way, a functional widow who nobody would lay with because his mother, Leah, is the other wife. Rachel has died, and he knows that his mother is hated by Jacob often, and so he's trying to improve her circumstance by eliminating the competition. Bilhah was Rachel's nurse. At least this way, he's going to have to go to Leah or Zilpah because now she's... Uh, Unclean. And he can't go to her. That's what Reuben's trying to do. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. It lists off their names there. And you read that portion and you think we still need the God who answers in our distress. The son who will sit at the right hand of God. The one who who's the son of righteousness, that will give us life and will 
will lead us in the ways everlasting. Finally, Jacob comes to his father Isaac, and they bury Isaac here at the end, and Jacob and Esau bury him together, signifying the end of Jacob and his struggle with Esau. There is more to read in Genesis, and I hope that you will take the time to do it and see how God has painted the picture of Jesus Christ all through the Old Testament. All through it. So much so that He is calling to us constantly to remember His presence and His life with us. He is calling to us constantly through images of blood being poured out, body being broken, sons being born, lives being saved. And in the midst of our distress, He answers us. So by way of closing, I would, I would ask you to remember how God has answered you in your distress. He has answered you with Christ. There is no greater comfort. There is no greater comforter. There is no greater life than Christ. He has answered you with Jesus. The life-giving Lord of all who sits at the right hand of God, even now, wait for the point of time 